You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. It is once again a special privilege to preach on this occasion. Last Sunday, we had the joy of celebrating Timin Lau's ordination, and uh, I delight to highlight for him and for others that he is now Pastor Timin. And many of you commented that that was the first time you had the chance to witness an ordination. Often when a pastor is added to the church, uh, he's either a man who's already been ordained or uh, the church doesn't practice ordination. Uh, But here at Sovereign Grace and in our family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches, we believe highly that the local church has the responsibility and the authority to ordain men to full-time ministry and to confirm their calling as those who are called by God to pastor his flock. Today is also going to be a first for many of you, if not all of you, as we celebrate the restoration of Michaela Simpson to the Lord Jesus Christ and to our church here at Sovereign Grace. One of the reasons why restoration is such a rare phenomenon is because church discipline is a rare phenomenon. A person can only be restored to the church if they've been disciplined by the church. We live in a time when church discipline is rarely practiced because it is much easier to turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. Now, I don't know all the reasons why churches fail to practice discipline since it's so clearly laid out in the New Testament, both in the Gospels and in Paul's letters. But I can imagine that many churches do not practice church discipline in the name of grace. We don't want to embarrass people. We don't want to shame people. Or we don't want to publicly air people's private sins. Or even it doesn't matter how people live. Everyone is welcome to be part of the church. Now these are all important considerations. We don't want to embarrass or shame people either. We want people who don't know Christ to know that they are welcome to come and to hear the gospel. The church isn't a country club for saints. It is a hospital for sinners, like Brett pointed out. It is a place where people who are burdened by the guilt of sin and enslaved by the power of sin can finally find relief at the cross. That is the essence of what it means to be a church. But when a member persists, and note carefully the language, when a church member persists in living in such a way that they have rejected Christ by their words or by their actions, it has to be addressed. As a professing Christian and a member of a church, you've committed yourself to a standard of belief and conduct that is subject to the ultimate authority of Scripture. You've committed yourself to believing the gospel to trusting Christ, and to living a life worthy of our Savior. That doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that you come to church on Sundays sinless. Every Sunday, every single one of us come as freshly convicted sinners in need of freshly provided grace. But what it means to be a faithful member is that you are committed to constantly turning away from sin and turning back to the Lord. 
Church discipline happens when a member abandons that standard. It happens when they refuse to change after multiple appeals to return to Christ. But they insist on living by their own standard rather than God's. And when that happens, a church not only has the authority but the responsibility to tell the person that they can't be part of the church because they're not right with the Lord. The Apostle Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 5 that church discipline is a form of judgment. The church collectively pronounces judgment on the person with grief and with tears. But unlike judgment that is pronounced in a courtroom that is meant to punish, judgment that is pronounced in a church is meant to redeem. Its purpose is redemptive, not punitive. A person is removed from the spiritual protection of the church for the purpose of exposing them to Satan's work and to the deceitfulness of sin that they might repent and return to Christ. Now, for those who have walked through church discipline before, you know that it seems like an impossible outcome at the time. It seems impossible to believe that this person who has become so hard-hearted, so resistant to biblical truth, that they could ever turn back to Christ and that they could ever return to the church. But Jesus gave us this parable in Luke chapter 15 to assure us that sometimes prodigals do, in fact, come home. And that is what we get to celebrate today. This text is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. But it's more accurate, in fact, to call it the parable of the two sons. That's how Jesus introduces it. He says there was a man who had two sons. And that is because this parable is just as much about the older brother who stayed as it is about the younger brother who left. It's about how younger brothers need grace And it's about how older brothers need to respond to that grace. It is both an invitation and a warning, an invitation to those who are living reckless, sinful lives to return to the Father's table. And it is a warning to those who stayed home to not resent that. And most importantly, it is about a father who gives his grace freely to all, whether they left or whether they stayed that all would receive his love and feast with him at his table. The title of this sermon is Celebrating the Return of the Prodigal. And we're going to have three points today. First, the reckless son. Second, the rejoicing father. And third, the religious brother. Now let's begin with the context. Back at the beginning of chapter 15, verse 1, Luke tells us this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious leaders of the time were not happy with the company that Jesus kept. Jesus was spending more time with the cheaters, the traitors, the adulterers, and the prostitutes than he was with the spiritually elite. And they weren't happy about that. They thought that if Jesus was truly a prophet, that he would know that these were sinners and he would refuse to associate with them. In response, Jesus tells them three parables to explain not only why he's receiving these sinners to himself, but he's rejoicing that they are. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. 
And notice how he begins with a question. Verses three and four, he says, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Jesus opens the parable with a question because the answer would have been obvious. Of course, the Pharisees and scribes agreed that the shepherd would go leave the 99 and find the one lost sheep. And when that sheep was found, they would rejoice. They knew that. Jesus tells the second parable in a similar way. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together his friends and na- her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. So what we see Jesus doing in response to these grumbling Pharisees and scribes is he gives them two obvious examples that they could relate to. And he's telling them these parables to explain why it is that he is rejoicing in receiving sinners and tax collectors. If they could rejoice at finding a lost sheep or a lost coin, how much more should they rejoice at finding a lost child of God? Now, the third parable is the one that we're studying today. And the first thing that you notice is that Jesus doesn't open this parable with a question. He doesn't say, what man of you, having lost a son to reckless living, wouldn't rejoice when he returned? And he doesn't do that because the answer to that question, answered from the perspective of the Pharisees and scribes, would not have been obvious at all. Would they rejoice at the return of a prodigal son who had squandered all their hard-earned money? Would you rejoice at the return of such a wayward child? Maybe not. But Jesus is saying that if we rejoice at finding a lost sheep or a lost coin, we should absolutely rejoice at finding a lost son. It doesn't matter what this child has done or how this child has lived. This child is so precious and so loved that that he is welcomed back into the father's arms without shame and without condition. Now the Pharisees and tax collectors didn't like that, which is why Jesus inserts the older brother into this parable. In the first two parables, all we have is joy. Come rejoice with me. Everyone's partying with the, the, the person who has found what was lost. But here, there is a begrudging party. And so if the younger brother represents the tax collectors and sinners who are being received by Jesus, the older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes. And the question for us, of course, is which one are we? Are we more like the younger brother or are we more like the older brother? And to answer that question, we need to understand this parable. And so we begin with the younger brother, verses 11 to 12. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. The first thing that we see here is the boldness and the brashness of this young man. This Young man does not wait until his father dies before he demands his inheritance. And demands it, he does. He doesn't ask for it. Father, would you give me my inheritance? Father, give me my inheritance, he says. He doesn't, 
He doesn't recognize that the father's wealth belongs to him as he chooses to dispense. Instead, he directs his father to give his hard-earned wealth to him, even though he had done nothing to deserve it. And surprisingly, the father complies. It's surprising because we imagine what we would have done in his shoes. We, we likely would not have given this brash, bold, younger son what he wanted. We would have scolded him, rebuked him, perhaps even cut him out of the will. What the father does here is shocking. But when we consider what scripture teaches us about how God treats us in our rebellious state, we are not so surprised. Romans 1, for example, says that when people choose to worship created things rather than the creator, God gives them up to the lusts of their hearts. It is a form of judgment. God sets them loose to live how they want so that they would experience what life is like apart from him. Now, the young man, he wastes no time in wasting his newfound wealth. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And just like that, his father's wealth is gone, at least one-third of it, perhaps one-half of it. It's squandered. It's wasted. It's spent on what verse 13 says on reckless living. This wealth that his father had spent a lifetime accumulating, not only for the sake of his two sons, but for the sake of every subsequent generation, has been spent on parties and prostitutes. As the world would say, he really lived it up. He seized the day. He lived as if there was no tomorrow, and he did it all with someone else's money. Now, in normal circumstances, he may have been fine. Perhaps he would have been able to find a job, become responsible, get married to one of the girls that he dated, settle down and become a responsible citizen in this far-off country. That's often what happens with prodigals. They start off living recklessly and then they become responsible. But then something happens that he wasn't expecting, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Now, we can't relate to that because we haven't experienced a severe famine in the land. But what it meant was not just no food. It meant no jobs. And for him, it meant no friends. As everyone retreated to their own land, to their own family inheritance, to take care of their own. And that is what life is like for us in reality, isn't it? It doesn't turn out the way that we plan. Because even when we do everything right, a famine hits or a pandemic hits and suddenly all our plans go out the window. And so we, we, we feel that this worldwide crisis is a curse because all that we hope to accomplish and do is suddenly compromised. But in God's providence, these worldwide events can be a gift because they are the very means that God uses to call rebels back to himself. And that is what it did for this young man. He realizes that he needs to find some way to survive. And so he goes and finds the only job that is available. Verse 15 says, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, as a Jewish man, this would have been humiliating, absolutely 
humiliating. Not only is he working under and for an unclean Gentile, but he is working for him in feeding unclean animals. Pigs were not part of Jewish society, and neither were Gentiles. Eating or touching pigs or associating with Gentiles would make you unclean and separate you from society. But this young man, he is desperate. He is desperate to get paid. He needs something to live off of. But apparently he wasn't getting paid enough. Verse 16 says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He may have been living the dream, but now he's living a nightmare. No more money, no more friends, no more fun. He is left all alone, unknown and uncared for in a land that is not his own. Now, it's a striking illustration of what it means spiritually to leave Christ for the world. The world may offer you glamour, pleasure, and prestige for a time, but at the end of the day, it is nothing more than a pigsty. And this young man is beginning to realize that, and he starts feeling the urge to return home. Verses 17 to 19, he says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What we see is a complete transformation in the heart of this young man. This bold, brash man has now become a broken man. He doesn't presume any longer on his father's generosity and care. He doesn't come with a list of demands. He comes with sorrow with contrition, with an awareness of the consequences and significance of what he has done. And he is willing to make, to do anything to make it right. He even says that he is willing to work as a hired servant because he knows that he owes his father a debt. He owes his father a debt. He squandered his father's property in reckless living. And now he wants to pay it back even if it takes a lifetime of living as a hired servant. Now, at this point, we are meant to ask, how will the father respond? How will he respond to his rebellious, wayward child? Well, not with coldness and not with anger, not with I told you so, but with joy. And that leads to our second point, the rejoicing father Verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now those who have read the Bible before, who have grown up in a Christian home, this is a familiar story, but let us not grow familiar and bored with familiar stories. This is a shocking moment. We may have felt anger when the son squandered his father's property. We may have felt even a sense of satisfaction when this wayward son ended up in the pigsty. But when the father sees his son, he feels compassion. Compassion. 
Literally, he was moved in his inward parts, in, in his gut, in the seat of the emotions. And he, he doesn't respond with anger or bitterness, but with a deep love for his boy who was lost and is now found. And so he runs. He runs to him. He, he runs to his boy. And he holds his mud-stained face. And he endures the, the stench of pigs on his clothing. And he kisses his filthy face. He doesn't even allow his son to finish his rehearsed speech. He begins speaking, but he doesn't get to the point where he says, you should hire me as your servant. He interrupts him, and he calls his servants, and he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Just as the son wasted no time in squandering his father's wealth, so the father wastes no time in welcoming him back home. He clothes him with his best robe. He covers his shame. Like God clothed Adam and Eve in the garden and covered their shame. He gives him a ring to adorn him. Perhaps a symbol of his authority, just like Pharaoh gave Joseph his ring as a symbol of his authority. And he gives him shoes to comfort him so he no longer has to walk on the hard ground with his bare feet. And then he calls for a feast. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. My friends, what we see here is that the father's first instinct is not to lecture, rebuke, or scold. He doesn't demand an accounting from his son. The father's first instinct is to rejoice and to call together the members of his household to celebrate with him. The father's compassion has turned to joy because the one who is dead is now alive. The one who is lost is now found. The father doesn't waste any time to welcome his boy back. Jesus is giving us a picture of God's very own heart. God has a heart of tender compassion and mercy. And he welcomes prodigals home with joy. My friends, we may be celebrating Michaela's restoration today with this special service and with a meal to come after the service, but the real party is happening in heaven as God himself and the angels in heaven surrounding his throne celebrate and rejoice. What we are doing is but a weak imitation of what God does himself when those who run off to a far country come home. It is far too easy to imagine that God is something that he is not. We imagine that God is like a dispassionate judge rather than a compassionate father. That he's kind of begrudgingly opening the gates to heaven while complaining that all the riffraff are coming in. When in fact he runs out to kiss us and embrace us. God does not wait for us to arrive. He doesn't wait for us to to finish the process of repentance before he runs out, embraces us, and kisses us. And then he walks us in 
back to our home with his arm on our shoulders so that we can eat and feast at his table. Michaela, I know that you feel shame about some of the things that you've done. You have come back to the church remorseful, broken, and needy, and perhaps you even feel a little bit like the son in this parable who felt like he had to earn his way back into the favor of God and the favor of this church. But God won't hear it. He will stop you before you can finish your speech. He will interrupt you and he will summon the servants to prepare the feast. Because listen, Michaela, your debt has already been paid. He paid the price for your sins through a son, through a faithful son who took your debt and paid it on the cross in full. So that you do not have to come back as a hired servant, but as a beloved daughter of the Most High God from the very start. There is grace for you, Michaela, and there is grace for every prodigal who returns from a far-off country to return home. And the opportunity that returning prodigals have is to help other prodigals come home. David speaks about this in Psalm 51. Listen to what he says. After David lived as a prodigal in his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, his faithful warrior, he writes this in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. If you are a prodigal who has returned from a far-off country to feast at the Father's table once more, you have a unique opportunity to teach transgressors God's ways and to see sinners return to God because of that testimony. You can tell people that the world is not worth it. You can tell people that Christ is all that we need, that Jesus is our greatest treasure, And he will welcome prodigals home, no matter how they have lived. But that's not the end of the parable. Jesus still wants to address a group of people who may not leave home, but they are just as much in danger of being alienated from the father as the son who left. And this leads to our final point, the religious brother. Verses 25 to 28 say this. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And we know that everyone likes to receive grace. But not everyone likes it when other people receive grace. In fact, seeing people receive blessings that they do not deserve can make some people angry. That's how the older brother felt. He refused to come into the party because he resented the fact that his father gave his younger brother something that he didn't deserve. As his father comes out to persuade him, this older brother responds with just as much disdain and disrespect 
as the younger brother showed before he left. Look at verses 29 to 30. He says, but he answered his father, look, look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. These are the words of a bitter, angry man. Doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't show a heart that is willing to listen and to learn. This is a man who is bitter and angry. He does not address his father respectfully at all. He says, look, look, you, not even father. He doesn't address him respectfully. He is angry because he didn't get what he thought he deserved. And his younger brother got what he didn't deserve. My friends, these are the marks of an older brother, an older brother attitude. They feel resentful at the grace that others receive. They have a high view of their own personal righteousness. They come to God with expectations and demands. They believe that God owes them for their many years of obedience. And worst of all, they have no true affection for the father. The older brother shows us that it's not just prodigals who are alienated from God. It is the self-righteous religious people who think that God is lucky to have them. Now, isn't it nice that God has me on his side? That I'm serving him? That I'm offering him all these things? And these people, they grumble at grace that is shown to others. And they expect blessings from God as a reward for their faithfulness. They refuse to celebrate when God shows grace and he gives someone his favor that they did not deserve or earn. The father says this in response. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father is saying to the older brother, son, don't, don't you see? Everything I'm giving to your brother, you already have. All that I have is yours. All that is mine belongs to you. The best coat, the ring on your finger, the shoes for your feet, it's all yours and you can enjoy it whenever you want. But most importantly, the father says, son, you are always with me, with me. You do not just have my gifts. You have the gift giver. You have myself. You have your father. And nothing is more precious than to have your father. And that is how the parable ends. That is how Jesus finishes the story. The reckless son is reconciled to the rejoicing father, but the self-righteous religious brother is not. Instead, he would rather stew in his anger and jealousy than join the party and enjoy the father's bounty. My friends, Jesus told this parable to invite younger brothers home, but he also told this parable to warn older brothers about the dangers of self-righteous, empty religion. And the question for us is, 
Which are you? Which am I? Have you been living far from God? Are you squandering the riches that God has purchased for you in Christ? Are you living in a far country where you know in your heart of hearts you don't truly belong there, but you've grown comfortable? Then hear the Father calling, come home to me. Come home to where you belong. Come and feast at my table. There is no shame here. I'm not going to embarrass you. There is only joy. There is only celebration. Come home and feast at my table. Come and receive my love. Come and be washed clean by the blood of Christ and restored as a child of God. And for those who have never left home, never lived recklessly, you hear it often in testimonies before baptisms. I don't have the dramatic testimony. Grew up in a Christian home. You also need to search your heart carefully to see if you're like the older brother. Do you grumble at grace? Are you impressed with your own self-righteousness? Do you come to God with expectations and demands not knowing that you already have him? Are you secretly resenting the fact that someone who lived a wayward life gets a party while you don't? And again, hear the Father's tender words. Friend, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But right now, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad because your sister was dead and is alive again. Your sister was lost and is now found. The heart of Jesus is so generous and welcoming that he wants both younger brothers and older brothers to come, to come to him and to feast at the Father's table. He wants those who are tempted by reckless license and those who are tempted by self-righteous legalism to come and enjoy and receive the Father's bounty. And so whoever you are, wherever you have been, God calls you to himself to feast, to celebrate, and to enjoy his presence, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, on this special occasion, as we celebrate Michaela's restoration, we recognize that there are lessons here for all of us. We pray that we would not exchange the riches of Christ for the pigsty of the world. And for those who have done that, that they would hear your gracious invitation to return and to know your love, that they would feel the Father's embrace and kiss and be clothed again with the righteousness of Christ to be honored in your presence. And for those who have stayed, who have lived a largely upright life and yet struggle with self-righteous pride, I pray that they also would hear your call to know that they are always with you and that all that you have belongs to them, not by merit, but also by grace, that all who are here, 
all who are part of this church, all who are attending this worship service would come and feast at your banqueting table with joy forevermore. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.